I'm a bit torn about where to have you turn in your Bibles. Uh, We'll be looking at Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, but so short, I'm sure you can memorize it even as I read it to you. Exodus 20, verse 13 is the sixth commandment, and it says, you shall not murder. There's another text that we need to keep in mind as we consider that one, and that's found in Matthew chapter 5. I won't be doing a proper exposition of it, but certainly we need to hear what the Lord Jesus says about the sixth commandment and have it before us as we consider what God wants us to think. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, the Lord Jesus speaks to us, says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, please take these words that you've put into your scripture and use them to instruct us now. Whatever pride and arrogance there exists in us, we would ask that you would convict us and even lead us to repentance now and replace us with a humility and attentiveness to your word. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Once again, the sixth commandment is very simply, you shall not commit murder. The principle that underlies that reality is that God loves life. God loves life, I think, is evident from the sheer abundance of life that exists in the world in which we live. We only have to look around and see life is plentiful. You look around at the natural world, you see that life literally springs from the ground almost everywhere you look. It is so abundant from plants to animals to humans. The reason that life is the reason that you have life and that you can see life wherever you look is because God is the one who has life in himself. Unlike everything else, no one needed to give God life. He has it himself. It is intrinsic to him. Jesus says in John 5, 26, the Father has life in himself. And Jesus is spoken of by the Apostle John by saying that in him was life. That's John chapter 1, verse 4. And because Jesus himself has life, all things were made through him. And Jesus declares about himself in John 14, 6, 
I am the life. He is the source of all life. Despite common misconceptions, there's common conceptions to the contrary, the only life that exists is life that comes from God. And if there were no God, there would be no life. You really do, as a matter of fact, need something eternal in order for something finite to exist. If there were no eternal God, there would be no finite matter, no finite life. God is the eternal someone from whom all things were made. It makes positively no sense to suggest that something has always existed except for God, and he is the creator of all things. This is something that we don't really need the Bible to know, and that's not a blasphemous statement. The Bible itself testifies that you only need to look around you to see that the whole of creation screams about the glory of its maker. It declares it everywhere you look. We know intuitively just by looking at that which is created that there is a creator, and that creator is abundant in life and abundant in power because that is where all life comes from. It is so evident to every human being that there is a creator that it takes the act of suppression of that truth to posit something like there is no God. The fact remains that God is the source of all life. And so all of our lives are derivative from and dependent upon him. It's no exaggeration to say that if God were to stop sustaining our life, our life would be snuffed out as quickly as if you turned off the switch to a light. In the very possession of our life, from the very beginning of it, the end of it, is all a gift. You had nothing to do with your own existence. You did not think yourself up. You did not suggest it as a good idea. The very life that you possess is a pure and complete gift from God himself. We did nothing to make ourselves or to bring ourselves into this world. From the very beginning to end, our life is from him, and it is through him, and it is also to him. Our lives don't exist for ourselves. It's not as though God gives us a life and says, here, go and do as you please. And then we get to determine what is going to please us and what we want to make of our life and what is purposeful in our life. Our life's purpose is not subjective. It is not defined by us. It is defined by God, and he made us in order to be his creatures who bring him glory. We exist for him. He's not a cruel master. He gives us great delight as we do bring him glory. As a matter of fact, it is our greatest joy to glorify him, or ought to be. But our lives don't exist for ourselves. It's very clear from the beginning of Scripture that when God made man and woman, he made them, it says in Genesis chapter 1, in the image of God. He created them. And so our life is not only a gift, but it is also a unique gift, unique in the realm of the universe in which God created. Human life is distinct, in a sense, from all other created life. 
And this, I think, is also corroborated by both our experience as well as by Scripture. Scripture, again, testifies man is made in the image of God, but just looking around at the world that we live in identifies that human life is so unique when compared against all other life. I enjoy, with my family, going to visit zoos and seeing animals there. They're just extraordinary. Uh, you get a great glimpse of the glory of God as you look at all those different uh, creations that he has made. It's a delight. Uh, I love watching um, kind of nature specials as well with my kids. We watched one last night, and they're phenomenal. give you an up-close view of, of the natural world that you really wouldn't see otherwise. And the, the narrators for that kind of uh, lose their minds when they identify the, the cleverness of certain animals. And sometimes they even describe uh, how animals, certain animals have been able to manipulate sticks and things to use them as tools and in order to insert them into like an anthill and extract them and lick the ants off of that. And they, they say, look at how amazing these animals are. They're able to use a tool. And it's amazing, isn't it? But I will really become amazed when those animals start studying other animals and writing books about them. That's what will be really impressive. And you see that the animal kingdom and all other parts of the natural world really have, have so much uh, to, to uh, match up to in the realm of human life. Human life exists on a level and on a plane that is completely distinct and unique from all the other created world. Man, unlike any other part of God's creation, receives the label made in the image of God. And it means in that that God pictures himself really to the creation through what he made in male and female. And certainly you see that just in the intelligence and the dominion and the capacities and the responsibilities that mankind possesses as we exhibit the image of God. But the image of God goes deeper into the very essence of what we are as human beings. The stamp that we have on our lives as made in the image of God points towards the value and the dignity that every human life inherently possesses. The image of God is not something that is earned or accomplished through certain acts. It was something that was written on Adam and Eve before they had done anything. Before they had done anything good or bad, they were still made in the image of God. And so every human being has this label stamped upon their life, made in the image of God, no matter how small or tall or handsome or ugly or smart or stupid or eloquent or mute. Even after the fall of Adam and Eve, humans still bear the image of God. It says in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, which is very much after the fall and after the flood, that human beings bear the image of God. And because this continues after the fall, because it was something that was given independent of works, it shows that just being human is exceptionally important, regardless of your ability or your race or your sex, just being human is important. So I would argue 
that from the moment that human life exists, wherever it exists, it is bearing the image of God, even in the womb. This is also why we would argue that regardless of physical or mental disabilities, no matter how severe, the image of God is still on that person if they are a human being. And I want to state this with as much clarity as possible. Even if a human being lacks the ability to speak, to hear, to see, to contribute anything meaningful to society, that human bears the image of God, their life is a gift, and their life is inherently valuable. Again, Genesis chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, which comes after the flood. After all, life really has been destroyed by God's judgment, and it's just Noah and his family left. God instills this statement into the fabric of the kind of life that humans are to have. He says in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply it. Here we see twin truths. The first is that life given by God is so valuable that if anyone takes that life, their own life will be taken as a consequence. And the second truth is kind of the flip side and the positive side, that because God is a God who is full of life and abundant of life, he wants his people to produce and spread out that the earth might be full of life because life exists in the Father and he bestows it freely. So we come to this sixth commandment, you shall not murder. This is given to the nation of Israel. This was a nation that had experienced a regime that treated life as cheap. They had been slaves in Egypt, and while in Egypt, Pharaoh gave an order that all of the male Egyptian children were to be thrown into the Nile and exposed and die. And so Israel saw a murderous regime that sought to exterminate really their hope by exterminating their children and effectively treating life as nothing. In Israel, saw that firsthand, and they may be tempted to think, well, that's the Egyptians, and that their hearts were fundamentally different. The fact of the matter is that the Israelites had the same kind of heart in them as the Egyptians did. This is the argument that Paul makes that runs like a wrecking ball through his book of Romans and really through man's self-righteousness. And he makes the point that between Jews and Gentiles, which encapsulates all people on the planet, there is no distinction between them. If you line all people up together, in one sense, they're all the same, and the thing that they have in common is this, he says in Romans 3.23, there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
the kind of lives that we were meant to live as creatures made in the image of God have all, to the last one of us, exchanged the glory of God and his greatness in his beauty and his majesty that were supposed to be manifest through human beings made in his image. And we've all exchanged that and supplanted it with something lesser, some created thing. Every last one of us has exchanged the glory of God and we've also suppressed the truth of God, about God for a lie. And in doing so, we've sought to become our own kind of overlords, our own little gods who determine the trajectory of our lives and determine what's right and wrong, what's true and false. And the consequence for this was not only did we now begin to disregard God and God and his design for us, but also we began to disregard his purpose for the whole of his creation. And the divine human relationship was spoiled by sin. There's a rift that was making, so now we are separated from God. But the sin that we have committed spoils more than just the divine human relationship. It also spoils the relationship that humans have with other humans. It becomes so evident that it's difficult to put two people in the same room for very long before they begin to dislike each other. When Israel was redeemed from Egypt, they were brought out into the wilderness to become God's people. They are to be set apart as a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, and they were to reflect God and his righteousness to his world, and they are to be governed by the law that he was giving to them, living under his ways and reflecting his greatness to the world. And God gives them commands about how they are relate to him, but then he also gives commands about how they are to interact on human-to-human -human interactions. And this is given because sin had corrupted the heart so devilishly that one human would look at another human, not as a brother created by the same God, bearing the same image of God, but really becoming an obstacle to what I want. And that's really the way that human beings tend to operate because of the corruption of sin. We become so me-centered, so selfish, so demanding, so expectant that our own ways will be fulfilled and that we'll accomplish our own purposes, that if anyone gets in the way, they are not looked really as another human being created in the image of God, but rather an obstacle to get out of your way in order to get what you want, even if it means using that person to satisfy your own selfish end. And that desire can grow so strong that if anyone gets in your way too much, you will extinguish them. to such a degree that you take their life. The classic example of this was the egregious sin that David committed, King David, when he saw Bathsheba and wanted her and took her, impregnated her to cover up his own sin 
had arranged for her husband to be killed. David, although not necessarily despising Uriah in kind of a, a fiery anger kind of way, despised him in the sense that he was an obstacle that impeded David from covering up his sin. And so he had to exterminate Uriah in order to accomplish the fulfillment of his plan, namely continuing to look innocent. So he had Uriah murdered. God knows that this kind of desire and path is laid on the hearts of mankind. And so in order to both restrain sin as well as expose it, God gave the very simple law to Israel, Sixth Commandment, you shall not murder. As we consider the importance of that commandment, might consider it kind of superfluous to elaborate any more on that. You might think it's really quite simple. You might say, I got it. Don't kill anybody. Check. Let's move on. You might also think that just the, the thought of taking somebody's life is so abhorrent to you that it's beyond the realm of possibility in your mind that you would ever do it. And so you don't even need to be told you shall not murder because you feel it is so foreign from you that you would never even come close to do it. I have two responses to that. First, is that as Jesus takes that sixth commandment and teaches on it, he applies it to a level deeper than we often are willing to go. But for that fact alone, we need to consider the seriousness of this commandment even further. But second, if you think that you are not capable of committing an atrocity like murder, you need to tread carefully. We are certainly blessed to live in the society in which we do, in which murder is by and large a great stigma. It's not in all societies throughout time. It's not always been a stigma. Oftentimes it's the norm. But we live in a society where it is largely a stigma. And there are severe consequences for being caught in the act of murder. And it looks, as a society, like murder is a, an atrocious sin. But here is an axiom that is exceptionally helpful. And it's 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. And this is the Apostle Paul speaking after he describes the kind of rebellion that Israel is known for. And he says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. sure we all have our stories that we could share. Remember a um, very sobering one for Priscilla and I that made this garage grow a little bit closer. There was a, a man that we both knew in college who was kind of a big teddy bear of a guy. And um, he's very, very popular, very well known. 
And we were both shocked when we heard my senior year that he was arrested for strangling the life out of the mother of his child and doing worse in a moment of rage. It would have been unthinkable to suggest that he would have ever done such a thing. But has your heart ever burned with such anger that it's almost like it's caught the flames of hell? And have you ever known the kind of passion that wants to fly through your mouth and your hands and your feet? A kind of anger that controls what you think and what you say and what you do. And it doesn't have to necessarily be the kind of anger that flies into a fiery rage. You can also have the kind of anger that's like an arctic wind blowing through the room that steals all warmth, peace, and joy from it. We'll talk more about that in a moment. This commandment needs to be understood as for what it's forbidding. The sixth commandment is only two words in the Hebrew, a few more in the English. Some translate it, you shall not kill. Some translate it, you shall not murder. The majority understanding is you shall not murder, and we can kind of just hear the difference. When it says you shall not kill, you think of any taking of life in any kind of context at all. You say you shall not murder, it more implies a, a kind of intentional killing. Some would advocate for a kind of Christian pacifism in which Killing in any setting, in any context, is always and completely wrong. And yet we know that Paul, in Romans 13, identifies that there are certain contexts in which killing actually needs to happen. Romans 13, verse 3 says, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. But you have no fear of the one who is in authority. Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. That's speaking of government, of rulership, and anyone hearing that would understand when it says they do not bear the sword in vain, they would understand that is capital punishment. So clearly, Scripture allows for government to have that capacity, and so it would not be then that the Sixth Commandment forbids killing in all contexts. This commandment is also not referencing war or self-defense or capital punishment or accidental deaths. The whole book of Joshua in the Old Testament is actually a command of God to go into the land of Canaan to engage in war in order to wipe out the inhabitants of Canaan. So certainly the Sixth Commandment is not prohibiting that when God expressly demands it. The church, however, is not given that instruction to go into Canaan and wipe out all the inhabitants, so we have no legitimacy of doing that. That was for that generation of Israel. But it at least implies it's not explicitly speaking of warfare. Elsewhere, 
In the law, there is provision for self-defense. When someone enters into your house at night and you strike them down, you're not held liable for their death. And capital punishment in the Old Testament is established for a number of criminal activities. There's also a law in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 4 through 6, that's a classic illustration of what happens in the realm of accidental deaths. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 4 says, This is the provision for the manslayer, who by fleeing there may save his life. If anyone kills his neighbor unintentionally without having hated him in the past, as when someone goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood, and his hand swings the axe to cut down a tree, and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies, he may flee to one of these cities and live. So this allows for a scenario where somebody accidentally kills another person. And again, the illustration is just somebody in the woods with an axe chopping down a tree and the axe head flies off and kills. How do you, how do you prohibit that? You, you shall not have an axe head fly off the handle of your axe and kill somebody. And that's not what the Sixth Commandment is about. And yet, there is also the understanding that there can be a kind of negligence that has led to the death of somebody else, and that negligence is culpable. The example of this is in Exodus chapter 21, verse 29. It describes an instance of a bull that was known to gore. It says, But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner also shall be put to death. There is fair and substantial warning that that owner had an animal that was dangerous and could cost somebody their life, and he chose to keep that animal over exterminating it, and in doing so valued animal life over human life. And that man is culpable with his own life. And so the Sixth Commandment extends to that scenario as well. Another scenario where it is told that if you have a rooftop and you do not put a fence around it, you are liable if somebody falls off because you need to live the kind of life that values human life. It doesn't think of it as cheap. And so the law does hold accountable those who are grossly negligent for their property. There is also another category kind of like the axe head, when somebody who has that happen, they are not liable. Numbers chapter 35 is an interesting chapter. You can read all of it another time. But it's describing the cities of refuge that Israel is to have set up. In the instance where somebody has accidentally killed somebody, and the relative of the person who has died is furious and wants to kill the one accidentally killed. And so these cities of refuge were a place for that manslayer to go. And it says in Numbers 35 verse 11, describing that manslayer going to that city, that the manslayer who kills any person without intent may flee there. And so there is the understanding that in the realm of, the, of negligence or intentionality, you are culpable. But in the realm of pure accident, you are not culpable. 
So this sixth commandment seems to be narrowed for us by the rest of the law as to what it is applying to. The sixth commandment is referencing murder that arises from selfish motives and hatred of the person murdered, as well as the experience of gross negligence. Joshua chapter 20, verses 5 and 6, describes again a man who was not intentional in the killing. He says, They shall not give up the manslayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor unknowingly. It did not hate him in the past. You see the connection now between the motive and the heart, the level of anger or hatred, and the act of murder. Let me give you a, a summary of what the Sixth Commandment does and doesn't refer to. Lawful executions were permitted in Israel. There are also provisions for accidental killings in which the person is not liable for the death of another. War is another category of death and killing that is not in view in the Sixth Commandment. Self-defense is another category of killing that is not in view in the Sixth Commandment. But what is always punishable and always forbidden is the intentional and unlawful or negligent killing of another person. This is obviously a good law. I think we live generally in a society that would say, yeah, that, that's a good one. We should probably keep that one. There's lots of other laws from the Bible we could get rid of, but that's a good one. And you can imagine for Israel what it would look like if they had hearts to obey this. It would be a society that is full of protection, security, peace. God knows that the people weren't going to live that way, and so there were punitive laws for those who broke it, namely capital punishment. But if they had had a heart to keep the Sixth Commandment, it would value life, protect life, and preserve life. This commandment clearly continues. We have no right to intentionally end a life to do so is murder. We might think, you know, because we live in the United States, we live in a relatively secure society, but we realize the news stories. We know that there is a thirst for blood. We just look at our culture and what do we love? We love gratuitously violent video games and gratuitously violent films. Horror films that are so macabre that you just delight in seeing the worst kinds of violence. And of course, this is not necessarily to name the, the primary place of sin. It's not just, just to indict that. It is to actually suggest it's the heart of our culture that loves violence. And it's murderous in more ways than one. One report indicates that solved murders have now dipped below 50%. That means that you have above 50% chance if you commit murder of getting away with it. And Chicago has seen the number of murder cases that result in one arrest dip below the mid-30% range. 
And of course, when criminals aren't punished, the crimes just perpetuate themselves. Because if there are no consequences, then there is no restraint. And if there is no restraint, then you just have full vent to what's in your heart. But again, you may be thinking, yeah, I get that. That's kind of our culture. But right here in our church, we, you know, we're not a, a congregation that's really struggling with murder. But we live in a society that treats life as cheap. And we need to, as God's people, stand up for life as being valuable because human beings are made in the image of God. And we know that God's design for the Sixth Commandment extends beyond just those typical violent crimes. There are circumstances that our culture and our society consider ending life as legitimate. I'm not saying that God views it as legitimate or we view it as legitimate. I'm just saying that there are circumstances in which society looks at these scenarios and thinks it would be legitimate and gracious and good to end the life of this human being. For instance, euthanasia or doctor-assisted suicide. But in those cases, we are robbing God in a sense where we take into our hands what is rightly His and what is His is the authority to kill and make alive. And He alone has that prerogative It may look merciful to end the life of someone who is suffering, but we are not given the ability by God to do that. No authority comes upon us from God to make that decision and that declaration that now is the time you get to die. One theologian writes, it makes a difference whether someone dies from cancer or from an act of euthanasia. In the latter case, the cause of death is not the fatal illness, but the fatal human act. And as we become more demented as a society and take moral steps that are further and further away from God, it is inevitable that everything is cheapened, including human life. And so we need to maintain a rigorous defense of human life. We need to understand that all human life, not just mine, is valuable because it is made in the image of God. You think, well, what's going to happen with all this prolific and murderous mentality out there? The psalmist of Psalm 94, verse 2 through 7, kind of gives voice the angst that we might have over all the bloodshed. When he says, rise up, O judge of the earth, repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words, all the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not receive. And we would say, yes, he does. And the Lord says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. I'd like to spend just the remaining few moments thinking with you, not just about the physical and outward act of violence and the taking of human life, but to look at how Jesus 
explains this commandment. The morality of what is intrinsic to the sixth commandment extends to demand more of us than just the refraining of taking life. Again, Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, Jesus speaks with a characteristic poignancy when he points out that guilt does not merely happen when we end the life of someone. It also happens when we hate someone, become in a fit of anger against someone, bitterly insult someone. Again, hear what Jesus says. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. He is explaining that the the people of the day were not unfamiliar with the Sixth Commandment. They would know it, and they would know it well, and they would also know that anyone who murdered would be liable to judgment. You think that's a no-brainer. You murder, you face the consequences. But then Jesus says something that is striking at the very heart. He says in verse 22, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Most people would probably say, I'm a pretty good person. I never killed anybody. I'm no Hitler. It's not like I deserve hell for the things I've done. I, I didn't murder anybody. And you ask them, well, what about murders? Well, yeah, they should go to hell. They should be judged. Not me, I'm no murderer. But Jesus says, if you've been angry with your brother and you've insulted them, you're liable to judgment. And they would say, well, that's not fair, Jesus. It's not, I didn't take their life. I didn't really do anything all that bad. It didn't hurt anybody. We always, we always like to have a leg up on other people, don't we, morally? We always like to think, there's always somebody worse. I'm not that bad, and so I can skate into heaven on my own merits because they're better than others. And the day of judgment, we'll be better off because, well, we didn't murder. I guarantee, however, there's not a single person in this room who has not been angry. And sinfully angry. And Jesus again says, whoever is, or everyone who is angry with his brother, or insults his brother, says to him, Raka, which is kind of like a swear word in Aramaic, calling him a, basically an imbecile, fool, a blockhead, to use the peanuts phrase. Or it calls them a fool, which is to indict their morality and their rebellion. You are liable to judgment. Well, what kind of judgment? Well, Jesus says, liable to the hell of fire. The same place that 
murderer's guilt. How's that fair? How's that right? Have you ever been in an argument with somebody where something kind of tips it off and the first person pulls out a bow and arrow and starts shooting the, the arrows of their mouth to try to aim for the heart and the next person pulls out the pistol and strikes trying to hit them with their words and the next person uh, pulls out the machine gun and just lays into the other with the words of their mouth. And then the next person pulls out a bazooka and fires missiles. And then the grenade launcher comes out. And then the atomic bomb comes out. And you're just looking to obliterate this person with your words, firing every angry dart that you can to the very core of who they are. And you attack their heart. You attack them at their core. You want to undermine them. You want to belittle them. You want to treat them like they're nothing. You want to get them out of the way of your purposes of what you want to accomplish so that if they ever say anything or do anything that hinders your desire for your life, they are going down. It doesn't have to be so fiery like that. It could just be those ice-cold daggers of your eyes that shoot right to the heart of the person that effectively says, I hate you. And in those moments, we have not taken blood from them, but in those moments, we have to remember that is a person made in the image of God who is both body and spirit, matter and soul, and you may not have attacked their physical form, but you have attacked the very image of God that he has placed on them, trying to deteriorate them to nothing, obliterate them to the dust of the earth. And Jesus says, if you are angry with your brother, you will be liable. You can take a murderer to trial, and we watch those trials, and we get fascinated with the the forensic evidence and the fingerprints and the eyewitness testimony and we get the cameras and we find out, yeah, that person definitely murdered that person, but how are you ever going to be exposed for the kind of anger in your heart that Jesus says you'll be liable to judgment? Well, the only way is that there is a judge in heaven who sees all, knows all, hears all, and knows every last drop of motive in your heart. and will be held to account. And this is precisely where the gospel of Jesus Christ comes to bear so directly in our life, because who of us has not been angry? And therefore, who of us is not liable to the hell of fire? And the curse of the law is the fact that we haven't kept it. And the curse of the law is that we deserve condemnation and eternal wrath from God. But it says in Galatians chapter 3, that Christ became a curse for us that we might be redeemed from the curse of the law. And as Jesus hung on the cross, he hung as a cursed man. He hung there like he was the murderer, like he was the one full of hatred, like he was the one who said and did and thought all those angry things. When as a matter of fact, he was the only one who loved perfectly and to the end. But in that moment, he bore all of our sins on the cross in his body. And he took the curse for us so that we would not be liable to judgment. 
but it goes beyond that. Because he rose from the dead in order to give us newness of life so that we wouldn't go on living in that ugly manner of life full of anger and hatred that is so murderous, but rather to give us the fulfillment of the law, which is simply this. Paul says in Romans 13, verse 9, that the commandment, you shall not murder, is summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Because when you've been so loved by the Lord Jesus Christ, you realize it's not enough just to say, I don't hate you. We could say that's probably a lot of people. But what God is after in our lives is a life of love that actually goes and brings goodness and grace and kindness, patience and forbearance and endurance to the very people who would drive us nuts otherwise. That's the sixth commandment. No taking a physical life. No feeling of anger and hatred towards another person. And yet we're all guilty. And the Lord Jesus can take that guilt for us to trust in him and give us newness of life that not only just doesn't kill people, but now in the positive side goes out and loves them. That's the sixth commandment. Let's pray. God, you indeed are the God who has created all life. All life is from you and we have no authority to take it. We also have no authority to execute our vengeance through anger on other people. Forgive us, Father, for the way that we do that too often. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who rescues us from our sin. We pray, Father, that through his life we might live how he lived. God, would you even this week place on our hearts a desire to love our neighbor as ourselves, not to be so easily angered? I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.